Hi. Welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. It's our weekly virtual church classroom podcast presented by me, Pastor Dan, on behalf of Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. And I also get a lot of help from my wonderful daughter, Bethany. And uh, we're glad that you're here this week, as always. Each week we study the Bible together, and our goal is to know the heart and mind of God and to do so by engaging our hearts and minds. It's a virtual Bible study, and it's meant to help you who are struggling to participate in Bible studies and Sunday school classes, but it is not meant to be a replacement for your involvement with church. So I say again, please be involved with the local church. Please participate more in the church you're already part of. You'll be glad you did. Let this be a supplement to what you do. We genuinely hope that you are blessed by this offering. As always, we begin with a little bit of worship. We want to love God and each other through extending our praise to him and our prayers for one another to God as well. So this week we read Psalm 6. Psalm 6 is... Uh, for the director of music and with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Don't you love that? It means that David didn't just write these words like little poems. He actually meant them to be used in worship. So that's why we're using them that way. Here we go. Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fall because fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all of you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Rebuke me in your anger Or chasten me in your wrath Be merciful to me For I am weak And pining your way So heal me Heal me Heal me Yeah Oh God, we all come to you with brokenness and weariness. There are so many times in our lives when we find ourselves unable to cope with the circumstances of our lives. And yet we are reminded that this is not new to you, nor is it new to anyone who puts their faith in you. It is, unfortunately, a part of life under the cloud of sin. While sin is still part of the human condition, there will be hardship and pain. And so, Lord, we look to the great day that we study in these scriptures, the day of your return, the day of your glory, the day when all things are made new. We pray in that spirit now, Lord, as we come together, asking for your blessings upon our world, upon our lives, upon everything that matters that you have called into existence. We ask your blessing on our homes, our families, our loved ones, we call upon you and ask for your help with our difficulties, whether they be financial or social or 
in some way with our employment or with the relationships of our lives. Oh God, we join together in prayer for one another, giving praise to you, glory to you, and thanks to you, even while we uphold one another in the love that you have put in our hearts as we pray together in Jesus' holy name. We're back again with Bethany for the next installment here of our Revelation study. We're in uh, episode five, I think. That's what I remember writing down anyway. And as usual, we're looking at the book of Revelation from a Bible study standpoint and not trying to find those sensational things that thrill and excite the masses but don't necessarily give us the whole picture. So, that's where we are. Bethany's over there on the other side of the computer screen. Say hi, Beth. Hello. Good, she's here. I'm really glad. Uh, I don't have enough computer screen to look at her and all my texts and everything. <laughs> so, you know, at some point she ends up getting shifted to the background and I just have to listen for the sound of her voice. So. <laughs> and I always say it's a good thing because I'm over here making a bunch of faces that probably would distract you. <laughs> Could be, and, and, and lots of gestures, but, you know, you are the apple of my eye that didn't fall far from the tree, so there's a lot of similarities there. <laughs> well, so we are, we are in uh, the second chapter, and we're on the second letter uh, uh, from Jesus to one of the churches, and here's, here's a sweet letter to a sweet church, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Smyrna. You know, if this is Jesus' report card, well, Smyrna seems to be getting an A. And uh, there's, uh, before, I'm going to ask Bethany to read the text here in a minute, but before we do, there's there's a, a neat little thing that uh, that Chuck Missler has identified that I think is worth looking for. There's uh, a, there's kind of a sevenfold design element to each of the letters. There's that seven thing, or heptatic again. In each of the letters, you will listen for the name of the church, the title that Christ has chosen for Christ's self in this case. You'll hear a commendation. You'll hear a concern. You'll hear an exhortation. You'll hear a promise to the overcomer. And then you'll hear some sort of closing uh, statement like, he who has ears listens, that, that kind of thing. So it's kind of neat. There's Each mm -hmm. of these letters has a sevenfold structure to it, and the structure is the same in every case. So listen for that as Bethany reads to us, starting at uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 8, the letter to Smyrna. You know, I would just like to point out, I noticed this last week, the letter to Ephesus, and this is an editing thing. It's not like magic or anything, but it's the first seven verses of the chapter two, huh. which is kind of weird. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Editing. It's not like magic or anything, but, yeah, but you know, it's you still know. cool. I mean, the, okay. ed the editors definitely, you know, did their thing and took certain editing license. And we've accepted that that's part of the publishing of the Bible, but they weren't stupid either. I mean, for for most cases, they followed what was apparently there anyway. So, good, yeah. good observation. All right, you ready? You going to read us that letter now? All right. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Hmm. Wow. Well, so uh, pretty good report card. 
you did some background study on Smyrna. You were just telling me about it before we started mm-hmm. recording. So why don't you share a little bit about your, your background study? All right. Well, I'm going to save the name meaning for last because it's my favorite part. <laughs> but um, so the first thing that I found out, I think I had kind of mentioned maybe last week or the week before it was like Ephesus and that it was also a port city. Mm-hmm. Um, but where Ephesus was not super defensible because it was right on the water, Smyrna was really defensible and it didn't change hands nearly as often as some of the other cities because it's it, the way it's located, it's on a port, but it also, there's a river and so right alongside it. So it's just a pretty good place to have, a trading center. Yeah, in fact, uh, I'm sorry. I, we did this last week. I guess it's okay. I, in my notes, one of the things I noticed that is is Ephesus, or I mean Smyrna, actually had like a two part port. Yeah. <laughs> Try to say that too many too many times fast, but it actually had an outer segment of the port for deep mooring, but then it had a narrow inlet to an inner port. And that narrow inlet could be chained and actually defended. So you're right. I mean, it it was an ideal kind of harbor um, under any circumstances, even in modern times. But but the inner harbor is all silted over now from what I've Mm -hmm. read. But go on. Well, and along with that, one of the things that came up a couple of places was that there's like when you look at Smyrna's history, there's like old Smyrna and new Smyrna because... Because when it did change hands, a lot of things changed. So when you're looking at information about it, you have to kind of make sure that you're um, that you know which one they're talking about. Mm. Which is interesting because it's the same place. Like location didn't change or anything, but there there's some kind of differentiation for whatever reason. Okay. Um, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting is that um, Smyrna is linked to Homer. Huh. Um, I don't know that Homer, well, so Homer may have visited. That was kind of vague in the things I was reading. We should probably but, make sure everybody knows we're not talking about Homer Simpson. Right, right. We're, Homer we're talking about Homer from a long, long time. <laughs> Go ahead. The, the Homer the poet. Hom- the, the poet. The, who, the poet. <laughs> uh, the poet. Homer the poet. Yeah. Um, Similar to Shakespeare, like, I shouldn't just go off on a tangent about Homer, but kind of similar to Shakespeare, where, like, some people think he was a guy, some people think he was a guy who stole a bunch of other people's work and supposed to fall into one thing. Yeah. Hard, hard to say, but Homer's kind of, like, the 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 guy, the Greek guy. Yeah. Um, and he wrote the Iliad, which is all about the Trojan War, and the Odyssey, which is, like, one of my favorite things ever. Um which is about Odysseus's return home and like the 20 years it took, which is just a really epic, awesome story. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's Homer. Uh, and so maybe he visited Smyrna at some point. Hmm. Um, but he was, I guess this river that I was talking about, um, M E L E S. So I'm, I'm going to say Malist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was called the son of Malist. Like people thought that maybe he came, he was like the son of this river. Yeah. Like literally the son of this river. Right. Um, because back in the day, the Greeks thought that like rivers were gods and stuff. I got you. So Homer was at least somehow connected to Smyrna because of this river, which I thought was really interesting and may have stayed in a cave and written a poem about it in Smyrna. Well, so. and that Malus <laughs> River um, enters, flows into the Gulf of Smyrna, mm-hmm. and therefore that river combined with the port and everything makes Smyrna a really vital uh, trade center even today. Um, it is Turkey's third largest city today. It still exists, mm-hmm. although it is not called Smyrna anymore. It's called Izmir. Yeah, Izmir. But uh, it is a, a city of about 300,000, and it's still a vital trade center because of those strategic uh, waterways. Yeah. So it also, here's the other random fact, I guess, not, not totally necessary. But 
um, it had a place called an Agora that is still like, you can kind of see where it was if you go there today, um, which was basically, it, it makes me think of like the old city in Jerusalem mm-hmm. um, and like the marketplace. Cause it was basically like a really big open common marketplace space. And the only reason I'm mentioning it is because I didn't know that Agora is where um, psychologists get the term agoraphobia. Huh. Because it means like, because agoraphobia is like not wanting to leave your house and go to places that are unfamiliar to you and stuff like that. Um, And it came from this big open space full of people, which would stress me out. So I get that. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. And then this is relevant. Um, I think I started to mention this when I was doing my little brief overview. Um, They were, so Smyrna was controlled by the Greeks for a long time. Um, Alexander the Great himself was at some point in Smyrna. Um, But at some point along the way, when Rome started to get a lot more powerful, they decided they wanted to cut ties with the king of Pergamum, which is another town we're going to talk about probably Mm -hmm. next week. Yep, that's next week. Um, They cut ties with the king of Pergamum, and in order to prove that they were going to be Rome's friends, they started a cult called the Cult of Roma. Hmm. Um, And so I think I mentioned emperor worship. This is the emperor worship. They literally created a god called Roma, Smyrna did. Um, in order to strengthen their bond with Rome. So they, they invented a god named <clears throat> after Rome to worship, to prove to Rome that they, they were going to be buddies so that Rome would protect them. You know, um, when I was a kid, my favorite pizza place in Pittsburgh was Pizza Roma. Mm. I'm not sure that has anything to do with the topic we're on, but I just thought I'd mention it since you did right. first. You know, right. So, but I'm, I think that is significant because when you read Jesus's letter to Smyrna, like they've done everything right. So clearly the church is not involved in some of this nonsense that's going on in that city. Yeah. Well, that's um, interesting because my notes also uh, kind of support that, that, that uh, it's sort of a sarcastic commentary on Smyrna. Uh, I, I don't think it's a discredit to the church, you understand, but Smyrna it says, has always managed to be on the winner's side of things throughout its existence. They, they've always had a knack for siding with the right parties, mm-hmm. which kind of, so, you know, goes along with what you were saying. You know, they, they seem to be able to see the changing fortunes coming and they maneuver accordingly uh, and they have historically. Maybe that's part of the reason that the city still exists. I think I think that makes a lot of sense because, um, yeah, like they they were aligned with the Ottomans until World War One. Um, Ataturk himself, who's a really cool dude that people should look up because he's just fascinating, um, was in Smyrna at one point, um, and yeah it's just really interesting i read that um the the entire city of smyrna burned in 1922 Mm -hmm. um like the whole city was lost basically um and came back yeah (laughs) because it's still a city today so that's pretty incredible um but yeah like the 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 death toll estimate is fascinating to me because it's it's one of the more vague ones i've read yeah it's 10 between 10,000 and 100,000 people died in this fire. That's really broad. That's yeah, that's kind of a wide range, but uh, <laughs> but then again, but, you know, in a mass casualty situation, it's always difficult to know. Mm-hmm. They still don't really know how many people died in the World Trade Centers, you know. Right. Um you can only guess and there's yeah, it's just unfortunate, but but yet, like you said, it, it came back and uh, it survived wars and, and, and all this. And it's still the third largest city in uh, Turkey to this day. So that's mm-hmm. pretty remarkable. Well, yeah, I think that's really fascinating. That's some great background on, on the Smyrna. And uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about Smyrna before we look at the text? Tell what the, word, the name means because yes. it's my favorite. Okay. Um, so Smyrna is a Greek word for myrrh, mm. which um, I happened to be at 
your church during Holy Week and we got some schooling on essential oils. You know, we uh, actually had the long version of that class last night, Bethany. Oh, awesome. And I'm it sad. was really cool. And we got yeah. we got to learn even more and it was a terrific class. That is awesome. So myrrh um is is a beautiful smelling oil for starters. It's gorgeous smelling. Um, but it is an oil that has been traditionally used to anoint people in death. Um, and you know, it happened to be a gift that was given to the guy that wrote the letter yeah. when he was babe. Um, yeah. So. In fact, we learned last night that throughout history, throughout recorded history, um, frankincense and myrrh are both highly valuable and expensive uh, because the harvesting of that, uh, uh, it's basically a resin. So, so it's a certain kind of tree. Um, mm -hmm. Frankincense, we learned last night, grows on the sides of cliffs. The trees Ooh. do, which means that the people who harvest it have to. It's, it reminds me of of like getting maple syrup. You you have to tap the tree at a certain point and then go away and come back later. And it will have oozed out tears, literally like the tears from your eyes, yeah. of the resin. And then they will start to solidify and then they harvest them. And it, myrrh, it turns out, is harvested the same way. And then it's brought back and dried out and then steamed into an oil. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how you get. So so the interesting thing is, is that, that those two, frankincense and myrrh, are... Uh, highly prized and pretty much throughout all of history always have been and have always been expensive because you know other than the relevance to the economy the fact remains that it's a fairly precious and rare element that takes a lot of of risky effort to harvest and therefore it's it's valuable so mm -hmm. that i think and and one of the reasons i had asked uh, diana to do this presentation was because I think that every time uh, bombs and oils and things are mentioned in Scripture, that's not any more accidental than anything else. It's it's all right. it all has a purpose. So the fact that Smyrna is named, uh, you know, means myrrh is probably not an accident. You know, it's well, I yeah, and I guess um, what I was reading is that like because of what myrrh is, has typically traditionally been used for a lot of times Smyrna also is, is like, um, yes, it means myrrh, but they've also said, well, it means death because it's the death oil. Yeah. Um, which is, I think is super interesting when you read that letter, because there's a lot of talk of death. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I don't know. I, I think that the whole thing with Jesus getting myrrh as a baby is fascinating too, because I just, I have this, this thing in my brain that just believes wholeheartedly that Mary probably kept it. Mm -hmm. Like maybe, I, you know, some people say, well, maybe they sold it because they, you know, they fled to Egypt, but I have this thing that I think Mary kept it. And I think it, that the myrrh given to him as a baby was probably used to annoy him and death. Well, and I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, no, no, I'm, I'm laughing at myself for what I was thinking. So I have to okay. tell you what I was thinking. But what I learned last night was is that the, the best frankincense and myrrh come from Egypt. Uh, mm. So it's, it's like the old joke, you know, there's only one place where Cuban cigars are, are cheap. Cuba, you know, yeah. and, and so stands to reason that if they wanted to get top dollar for their frankincense and myrrh, they would not have said, they would not have uh, sold it in Egypt, you know, <laughs> Yeah. probably. So kind of, it, it's a out of the, out of the way kind of way of, of uh, supporting your, your argument. Um, but yeah, we learned that last night though, in our seminar that that's, that's <laughs> where the best comes from. So a lot of these that. things can be synthesized and stuff, but if you want the real deal, right, that comes from Egypt. So it's kind of interesting, but well, mm -hmm. that's that's a perfect segue into looking at the text itself. So yeah, so uh, he starts by addressing the letter to the angel of the church of Smyrna, and he says, "These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again." So there's uh, element one of his sevenfold uh, format, and 
This time Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. And you remember he had referred to himself as the Alpha and the Omega in the Gospels, the first and the last. And then he who died and came to life again. And uh, so it's not like there's any question of who it is that's addressing them. Mm -hmm. It is a letter from Jesus. And the first thing he says is, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, this to me, uh, I've, I've just uh, finished listening to C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Um, and really an awesome book. I, I, I'm, I'm going to listen to it again. It's not a long book, and I've got a paper copy coming from Amazon tomorrow. Uh, because now I need to mark it up. There are so many terrific quotes in there. And, uh, but one of the things that, that I'm thinking of is, is there's a character described in there who in this sort of uh, parallel image that he's created of, of heaven, um, C.S. Lewis describes this one particular woman who, and, and, and I'm, I was mowing the grass while I was listening to this last chapter or two, and, and I was pushing along there, and, and he's describing this woman who enters, and she's surrounded by people who are singing and praising, and she's, she's glowing and radiant, and he can't tell whether she's clothed or naked because her glow is so brilliant. Uh, she seems to have a train because her, or, you know, her, her kind of residual glow is sort of trailing behind her and and he's describing all this and and uh his host uh his host says so have you figured out who that is yet and and he says i don't know is it the madonna you know is and the guy says no it's it's uh and then he i can't remember but he says it's some lady named ethel <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> and and he says she's one of the most radiant beings here because Everywhere she was, she radiated Christ. Everyone she met, met Christ. Everyone she loved felt the love of Christ. And so he's describing this, this saint, basically, who's gone to heaven. And, and she's being celebrated and lauded in heaven in a way that she probably was never even noticed on earth, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just this whole idea that that's really the essence of Christianity and it goes right along with verse 9 that says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So, so this character that was described in The Great Divorce is this person who probably didn't seem all that important on earth, but is being celebrated in heaven like royalty. Well, and it also kind of harkens back to kind of a famous sermon that Jesus did. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah, right. <laughs> Blessed are you. You got to love it. Yeah. He says, uh, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That one we're going to have to do a little, uh, a little bit of interpretation with. Yeah. Uh, Jews who are not Jews. You know, what a synagogue of Satan. What does that mean exactly? Um, you know, he's referring to uh, a kind of blasphemy. Um, there's another somewhat controversial uh, uh, teacher that I listen to regularly, um, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And, uh, I don't, you know, I don't mind telling about Chuck Missler and Daniel Lappin. It's just that, that uh, those who know me well will understand that I listen to a wide variety. I have what used to be a good thing, and that is a very liberal mind and a liberal education. But now it's more that term doesn't seem to mean what it used to mean. Um, liberal education, a liberal mind used to mean that you were somebody who looked at all things from all perspectives, and you heard and understood as much as you could from every conceivable direction. And then you applied your critical thinking skills and came up with your own points of view on things. Right. But in our current political climate, I don't profess to be liberal or conservative because to be that openly in any way 
automatically gets you pigeonholed and I'm not wanting to be pigeonholed. So I've always been a little reluctant then to name some of these people that I listen to uh, for interpretation of things like scripture. But I, I read lots of commentaries and I listen to lots of commentaries, but I find that a couple of the more controversial characters like Chuck Missler and, and Rabbi Lappin, uh, they're more daring, and they will tell you things that you're not going to hear anywhere else, and I check them, and I find that what they say can't be argued with. It's just that in our current political climate, people like that are usually dismissed as, as you know, radicals who are haters and all this, and it couldn't be further from the truth. They just are unwavering on their topic, you know, and, and both men are critically, completely devoted to Scripture as the primary source of God's revelation to the world. And, and uh, with that in mind, Rabbi Lappin always says that he thinks that one of the biggest problems in this country right now is Jews. <laughs> and he is one, you know, but, but uh, he has, a, you know, I couldn't do him justice because I would have to take hours and hours to try to explain what he says. But his general thesis is, is that there are many, 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 many people, probably he would say three quarters of the people who profess to be Jewish in this country are Jewish in name or culture only. They really, many of them don't believe in God. I mean, there are people who would say they are Jewish and atheist, as though you can be ethnically Jewish, you know. Um, mm -hmm. but, but what he argues is, is when did Judaism become an ethnicity? Um, you could be ethnically Israeli, you know, you could be ethnically Eastern European, you, you know, ethnically you could claim a certain heritage, but, but he, he feels that it's a real shame that, that over the last couple of hundred years, Judaism, especially in this country, has taken on a sort of ethnic identity that is based in no particular ethnicity. It's just a way of saying I self-identify as a Jew, but it doesn't mean I actually believe what Jews believe. I just don't believe what Christians believe, for example, or Muslims believe, you know. And so his whole argument is, is that it's basically a form of blasphemy. <laughs> You know, that that they're basically arguing about the things that affect our culture, like like uh, political correctness about uh, uh, about the way we um, determine, you know, the rights of others and free speech and all this kind of stuff. And those people he uses as an example because those are his people, so to speak, and he feels like he's the only one that can criticize them and get away with it. And he makes the argument that those people are arguing for non-biblical points of view based on their Jewishness, and there's something ironic and downright sort of blasphemous about it, you know? <laughs> Because, because they're basically anti-God, anti-Bible, but they identify themselves as God's people, you know. And I, I know there's a long explanation, but the reason I mention it is because here we are in Smyrna. These folks are facing Jews who are not Jews. Right. <laughs> you know, and it kind of sounds the same way. And, and they're facing Christians who are legalistic. Christians who demand that Gentiles get circumcised in order to be full Jewish Christians. Like, yeah. like you have to do that sequence or something. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, because this is the thing that they are facing up to, that Jesus is commending them for staying the course. So what do you imagine staying the course looked like then? I mean, what do you suppose these good Smyrna Christians did that Jesus was so pleased with? Well, I'm going to guess that since they didn't get a critique, whereas Ephesus has forgotten their first love, Smyrna probably hasn't because they didn't get a critique so at all. They're staying in love with God, Jesus. Right. 
they've well, kept their first then, love. And then I'm guessing that probably they're they're pretty good about following those commandments that Jesus gave mm-hmm. about loving people and him and stuff. You know. Um and I'm guessing that, you know, like they're they're staying away from these other people. Yeah, or I, I I was dealing with girl drama all day and I constantly have this conversation with sweet, beautiful, wonderful young ladies <laughs> about how if somebody is being mean and nasty to you, then maybe don't go to them into being more mean and nasty. Maybe like don't talk to them. Stay away from them. Be nice, but don't get into it with them. And I kind of feel like Smyrna is doing what I would tell them to do. They're being nice and they're being good to the people around them, but they're not messing with that nonsense. Yeah. And they're, they're staying out of the drama. And that that's perfect. Cause, because I think, you know, it would be like, if I were writing my sermon, I would have done all of this in a sort of sequential way, you know, building, building, building. And then we get to the here and now point, but nice thing about this kind of conversation is, is we can go back and forth. The beautiful thing about the letters to the churches in Revelation is that they are written to those churches that literally existed in the day, but they are written to churches throughout time and types of churches and types of Christians. So there's no way you get out of Jesus's rebuke and commendation here. You know, every commendation and every rebuke in every one of these letters applies to us. Somewhere, somehow, we can either see our church in it, we can see ourselves in it, we can see, uh, you know, our communities. It, it, Jesus gets us all as only he can in these letters. And what I see here is, for example, this issue that I f- frequently confront where people in my churches, not particularly Shiloh, but in all churches in general, they go to the pastor and they say, what are we going to do about the United Methodist Church not being able to make up its mind whether pastors and bishops should be allowed to marry gay people and all this? And they want me to say, we're going to take action and we're going to take action now and this is what we're going to do. And 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 I've had people say to me, you know, God's going to punish us if we don't take a stand on this. And 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 I kind of want to say, based on what, you know, where do you come up with that? Right. But then you wisely connected it to the reality that you deal with every day, which is girl drama from, you know, from all the stories you've told me. And, and the reality is, is that the first and most important thing every church has to do is stay focused on Christ. Yes. And some of the times that I hear people arguing with me about how the church needs to take a stand and argue against this wavering and inconsistency on the part of the church leaders in the United Methodist Church, sometimes I just want to look at them and go, let's just stay focused on Christ for now. Because really, all I hear is, is you're focusing on the enemy. You're focusing on the church's strife. You're focusing on those people in the church who do not uphold scripture. I say, let's put all of our focus and attention on Christ and let Christ take care of the enemy. You know, that usually works. <laughs> Something else that I say like five times a day, worry about you. Yeah. Let every, like let the grown-ups, let Jesus take care of all the rest of it. Worry about what you're doing. You know, counseling is a certain part of my job, and I do particularly uh, the counsel of a church pastor. That's not the same as pastoral counseling. It's not the same as professional psychological analysis and that kind of thing. I do the pastor or the rabbi discussing your thing with you from a biblical point of view and then praying with you about it. That's what I do for a living. And over the years of doing that, more often than not, I've had to say to people, well, it sounds like the biggest problem you're having is is you can't get the other person to change. (laughs) And over the years, they've had to say, you're right, that's it. And my answer is, is, you know what? You probably never will either. The only one you can really change and know whether you've made any progress in the changing is you. 
And it, yeah. it doesn't mean that the inability of the other person to change isn't a problem. I mean, I, I'm right there with you. When people frustrate us and make our lives harder because they don't change, that there's no denying that that's a hard thing to deal with. But the reality is you could spend an awful lot of your life trying to change someone else and never see results. Yep. And then what have you accomplished? You know, nothing. If, on the other hand, you spent the same amount of time and energy continuing to change yourself and move yourself towards a better nature and a more Christ-like nature, it may not solve your problems, but it'll probably make you more at ease with your problems. It'll probably make you... Uh, able to think them through more clearly and make better decisions about them, you know. So, so yep. that's always been my counsel, you know, is this: don't try to fix other people because, you know, God doesn't even do that. If you think about it, God gives us free will, and yep. God is more than ready to grant us uh, His leadership over our lives. But He won't give us leadership over He won't give us His leadership of our lives unless we ask him to, you know, he, he, he doesn't take it without permission. It has to be given to him, you know, and the idea that we would ask God to somehow take away the will of another so that they will conform to our expectations is sort of absurd. And I'm not saying that from a holier than thou point of view. It's just the reality is, is we all find ourselves frustrated with other people, wanting them to change, and then asking God to make them change. And then at some point, if we're really honest with ourselves, we go, well, I can't ask God to make them change. Yeah. Because then they might be praying that God would make me change. And, and as far as I know, that's not happening either. So the only thing you can really make a difference in is your own life and you change yourself. And, and I think it comes back to what you're saying. Maybe the greatest thing about Smyrna is, is that it's a church of people who are focused on the main thing and they suffer, but they do it richly. Uh, you know, he says that he knows their poverty, you know, they, he knows their sufferings. Now, it could be literal. Uh, it could be everything from, you know, slander, having their names and their reputations ruined. Maybe they can't get credit at the bank. Maybe they can't uh, shop in certain places because they've been discredited by their critics. And, and all of these things are frustrating, but not, you know, necessarily going to kill you. But it it's the price you pay for staying the course and being committed to the most important thing. Um, so in verse 10, he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Wow. Okay. Now we are talking about something that might kill you. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, it's just interesting to, to parse it out in the way that I did and then come to the next verse where he mm -hmm. says, yeah, it, it'll get that bad. And, and I think this is important because we all have to recognize that, that we think we should get rewarded for doing the right thing and standing firm for Jesus. And Jesus's answer is, is you will be rewarded, but you still might end up getting thrown in the po pokey for a while. You know I mean? Well, you know what I read? that I didn't know um, that kind of goes with this. Um, Polycarp, the mm -hmm. bishop, he was martyred in Smyrna. Yeah, I've got that in my notes, too. I I didn't know that that's where And it at happened. 86 years old, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Like, let the guy just... Yeah, let, what's, let what's the point, you know? <laughs> but, yeah, I didn't realize it was in Smyrna, so I thought that was kind of interesting. yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, so there's no getting around it. And, and it all comes back, by the way, and, and I, I'm kind of glad this came back to my uh, 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 mind because the, um, it, it comes back to this temple uh, to Caesar. Now, someone asked me in the uh, Facebook group a week ago, they, they said, now, when you say emperor worship, what do you mean exactly? Emperors in general, and and it was a good question. But we are what we mean mm. is Caesar. We Caesar the man. We mean that Caesars over the years, the kings or the rulers of of Rome, at some point they started saying, "Look, if you don't see us as your god, then you're not loyal." And so you had to go to a temple or to an altar that was dedicated to Caesar. You had a little pinch of dust you put in a thing and you declared him your god 
And a lot of Christians just said, no, I can't do that. You know, Jesus is my Lord. I'm not going to do that. And, and of course, in the Roman way of things, if you didn't do that, then the punishment was death. And people said, well, I'd rather have death than to deny Jesus and to honor a false god. And uh, to the world, this seemed absurd. And, and this is kind of the nature of this whole uh, Jewish persecution. You know, the Jews are going, look, you people are going to bring down Roman persecution on us. So the Christians got persecuted by the Jews in Smyrna and in that part of Asia because the yeah. Jews didn't want the Christians bringing down Roman persecution on all of them because the Romans didn't discriminate between Jews and Christians. They all look like Jews to the Romans. So the Jews were the Jews were persecuting probably more in business and commerce and that kind of thing. So the Jews were persecuting the Christians, and the Christians were bringing persecution from Rome because they wouldn't worship Caesar as God. And uh, some of the local procurators were more particular about that than others. So those seasons of tribulation or, or seasons of uh, of persecution would come. And perhaps at times, dozens and dozens of Christians would be martyred uh, just to make a point. Um, it's interesting. Uh, my commentary says that the 10 days that they're talking about actually describes the 10 Caesars that uh, existed during the church age. So from the birth of the church, there was Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Septimus Severus, Maximus, Decius, Valerian, Aurelian, and Diocletian. And as I recall, Diocletian was one of the really bad ones for persecution. But it was like Domitian was 95 to 96 AD, and he's the one that exiled John to Patmos, for example. So it's interesting that they say you might have to suffer for 10 days. So Smyrna is really all in with Rome because Smyrna seems to have this knack for siding with the winners. And for 10 Caesars, Smyrna is going to be a hot spot for persecution because of their devotion to the Caesar. Mm-hmm. So kind of makes sense when you think about it that way. Well, and when my Bible is talking about the prophetic piece that the, I mean, what you're saying, like the prophetic part of the letters, it says that the letter to Smyrna characterizes the church under persecution, which would have been AD 100 to circa 100 to 316, which would be like what you're talking about. Yeah. So... That's interesting. I was wondering about why. I thought it was interesting that it was a specific 10 days. I didn't know if that had something to do with things we're going to read later. Or, but that what you're saying makes sense. I like that. Well, and it kind of goes along with some other things we will read later that that I've heard over the years. And and there are certain, I don't know, sometimes they're referred to as code words, and I'm not sure that's a good way to put it. But there are certain things that are said in Revelation that, have particular relevance in the moment, like in in the writing period. Uh, And this would be one of those cases, you know. Um, And it's both prophetic and it is um, kind of, you know, contemporary. And and, and the interesting thing is, 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 you know, Christian persecution under Rome ended at some point when another Caesar comes along after those 10 and says, he's a Christian. Mm-hmm. So, you know, literally it is prophetic in that after probably some gener, you know, after maybe a generation has died off, they're getting down to the 10th Caesar. They still haven't figured out that that's what's going on. But then all of a sudden there's this breakthrough and, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, there's Constantine, the Christian emperor, and uh, suddenly people are going, hey, you know, we're not being persecuted anymore. We're actually being celebrated. And this was the 11th. Yeah. And so they would have figured it out. And that's why I always say I didn't make this up. But I mean, it just it's something that should be said about prophecy. And that is prophecy is is always meant to verify that God's on top of things, that God knows what's going down, you know. You're supposed to look at it and go, oh, you know, God said this would happen. 
<laughs> which yeah. is just more proof that you can trust what God says. And that that's really the point of prophecy more than to give us things to worry about. Mm-hmm. Which is another reason why I don't read. Re- that's why I refuse to read Revelation the way a lot of people do, because too many people read Revelation so they can worry. And when they get done with that, they go to Daniel so they can worry some more. And then they go back well, to Revelation so they can worry some more. I'm not supposed to worry. That's right. Worry's a sin. You're right. Because mom loves to tell me that when I'm freaking out about stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, we all are guilty of it at some point. But I think that it's really kind of uh, uh, fair to say that, that on uh, a somewhat less than pagan level, we all have to watch out for the danger of worshiping our fear. Yeah. You know, but giving more attention to the enemy than to the deliverer, you know, mm-hmm. and it's easy, but it's, it's something we have to stand against. So, well, okay. So we've really, we've done a good job on this one and I look at the time and I think we're doing really well. So, so do you have any other uh, interesting observations or anything you want to share? Yep. Let, let her rip. Yeah. I'm really, really, you know, we didn't talk about this when we read it at the very beginning, but I'm super into the fact that Jesus describes himself as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again, Uh because then he proceeds to tell them that there's a good chance that things aren't going to go well for them, but it's going to be okay because he's going to bring them back. Hmm. Like in, at the end of verse 10, he says, like, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. So he describes himself as being resurrected and then tells them, I'm going to resurrect you. You're coming back. Yeah. And I just think that that's beautiful. I'm, I'm so glad that you made me do that, you know, cause I just kind of got to thinking about time and didn't finish, but that's so important. That is exactly what we need to remember in the Tuesday prayer group that I lead um that was kind of our discussion we were we were talking about a really wonderful gentleman in the church who is in his final hours and and we were just talking about how we have to always hold on to the fact that this is temporary and Mm -hmm. it it doesn't mean that our losses don't hurt terribly i mean if i lost one of my children or if one of them lost us you know if our children lost one of us or something there's going to be pain there's going to be a great deal of pain and it isn't going to go away fast but there's going to be a hope and a certainty in our hearts that some people will not ever have because yeah. of promises like his promise to the church at Smyrna. Yeah, you might suffer. Some of you may die. But understand that I died and rose again. And this is my hope and promise instilled in you. You will be back. Right. Like, you know, I just glory. think better to tell you that than the one who actually did it. Like, he did that. Yeah, yeah. And he said. I'm going to make sure that happens for you too. And then like he goes on in verse 11 and tells them like, as long as you keep doing what you've been doing, there's, you're not going to have any pain in the second death, which I guess I'm interpreting as like the judgment and stuff. Yeah. But, Go ahead. And he said, well, no, like I know that's coming up in the book, so I won't like go deep or anything, but I just think it's like, like he gives them all this prediction about stuff that's going to happen to them. And it sounds terrible, but then he's so gentle and says like, man, as long as you keep doing what you're doing, cause I'm assuming like it says he who overcomes will not be hurt. Sounds to me like the church of Smyrna overcomes. Like I don't think there's going to be people in that church that need to worry about this. Yeah. I, I'm and right. So nice. how he. I'm right there with you. And, and, and I guess, but, but let's, let's, you know, I talk this way. Um, and then, you know, maybe my back gets a little out of whack and I have a headache for 24 hours, which I just did. Okay. And during my headache, I'm not thinking, Oh, joy, this is only temporary. I'm going, man, my head hurts. So, I mean, the reality is, is whatever we're suffering through, and believe me, a headache's nothing compared to what these people at Smyrna were probably going to confront. There's, there's nothing that you can do to change the fact that some things are painful. They hurt. Mm-hmm. They just hurt. Torture and death are not pretty. And it's nothing that someone, you know, it's nothing you should look forward to. Although in that era, many saints look forward to being martyred. And yeah. seem to have some sort of capacity for 
being at peace while they were being torn apart by wild animals. I, it's kind of amazing, but, but, you know, I can only say thank God for their testimony because if it ever happens to me, I hope I can do it too. But, but just the same, uh, there's no escaping the pain. There's just the reality that the pain is not how it ends. It's Mm -hmm. only how it changes, you know, and, and that's some comfort, you know, um, it's, uh, it's, it's really, you know, there's, there's a lot of directions I could go with that, but I think it's probably a good time to, to not go there. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, I, I don't know about anybody else that's listening, but you know, the fact is, is, is as Christians, um, we think about death too. And we wonder, mm-hmm. you know, well, what's it like, you know, cause it's not like people who have ever completed the process come back and tell us except Jesus. And, and so there's always these kind of like, gee, I wonder, you know, and, and the truth is, is that our, our physiology gives us all kinds of insights into how fearfully and wonderfully we're made and how much God loves us because he's actually designed our bodies to, to shut down in a systematic way that prevents us from suffering unduly uh, mm-hmm. in most cases. So it's kind of remarkable because, because even in that, and I, obviously there are exceptions and we've seen people suffer terribly and it's, that's, but I'm just saying in general, God is gracious, even in that he's designed us in a way that that uh, sort of, you know, there is a truth to the statement that the apostle makes when he says, oh, death, where is your sting? Mm-hmm. You know, so. Well, that's good stuff. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? I don't think so. So next week we're going to do the letter to Pergamum. And so we want our friends to read ahead, do their homework, and you and I will do ours. Uh, anything interesting that you want to tell them to look for, uh, be on the lookout for at Pergamum? Um, I've, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Um, it's not one of my favorite ones. <laughs> we just did my favorite ones. So. Well, sure. I imagine everybody feels like that. Yeah. Now I feel like most people really love Philadelphia and they're great and all, but I just really love the people in Smyrna just based on the way Jesus talks to them. I just think they're all right. I want to be more like them. Pergamum's got an issue with Caesar worship too. Ooh, the imperial cult. Yeah. So they have the emperor, the emperor cult and, oh, yeah. uh, um, they have a problem with these uh, sort of pagan variations of sex and marriage. And, mm-hmm. uh, so they've got that kind of weirdness going on too. Um, there's a sort of strange perverted religion to it. Um, there's a sense that Satan is a little more evident in Pergamum. Yes. And so we want people to be kind of on the lookout for, for signs of Satan in Pergamum. So that's probably enough to look for. But, uh, wow, another great time together. And, you know, I've noticed that you and I keep getting better at this with practice. So, <laughs> I mean, I, not that it's up to me to say so because the listeners have to say that. But but uh, it seems to me that you and I are kind of getting a rhythm and, and uh, uh, I like the way this is going. So fun, fun, fun. And, I'm glad uh, because I was worried that this week I was going to be not on my game at all because I, I've been falling asleep at like 7.30 every night this week. Well, and I won't lie, uh, right before I came down to uh, to record this with you, um, I was still suffering with the headache and I thought, man, I don't know how much of a job I'm going to be able to do with this yeah. tonight. But the Lord has just helped us both to do this because we're doing it for his glory. So praise right. God, huh? Mm -hmm. All right, baby. Thank you so much for another great uh, conversation about scripture. Uh, Tell everybody bye. Bye. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's uh, section, uh, this week's episode of the Revelation Bible Study. I want to uh, thank you again for joining us. I hope you've been blessed. Please send your comments and questions. The best way to be part of the conversation is in our Facebook group, Knowing God with Heart and Mind. You can find that by searching Facebook. Um, You can get there a little more quickly by finding Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper and then looking for 
a link to it, but the easiest way is to just click the link that is in the description box with this particular podcast episode. So we hope you'll join us if you're in the Jasper area. We'd be glad to see you. I hope you'll tell me somehow or another that this opportunity uh, to study together online has been a blessing to you. But for now, God bless you and goodbye.